0: this morning, before we jump in the Word, um, I want to bring your attention to something. If you were not here last, last Sunday, um, the teaching last Sunday and a lot of our service was focused on leadership, uh, having, reclaiming a high view of leadership, and uh, there was a flyer that was left that was part of the notes for the teaching that had to do with elders and deacons, and what we are doing as a church family and releasing elders and putting some deacons in place and part of that process <clears throat> excuse me, is that we feel called to the Lord to install Larry Schmidt as an elder. Why don't you stand? Larry and Deborah, would you stand? Um, <clears throat> yeah, we, we feel like the Lord has uh, called us to install uh, Larry as an elder. And so we're walking through the process of that. Part of that process for our church includes putting him before you and seeking your input. So in the back, as you leave, if you weren't here last week, there's not only some of the notes from last week, but there's this, which is more important. If this is your church family, we would love to have one of these filled out by you. And this simply is seeking your input on Larry uh, being able to either give a yes or I don't know him enough or, hey, you know, I'm not sure about that guy's haircut or whatever. But we are, we are looking for a confirmation and we also want to hear if there's any concerns. You know, this is, uh, it's a little bit vulnerable, but that's, uh, hey, uh, leadership is vulnerable. That's part of what it is. We are also looking to uh, put some deacons in place, and we, have, we believe that the Lord's uh, calling us to set aside the stalls, uh, the Ainleys, uh, Rudy and Debbie Witchy, and Pam Evans. And so their names are also on here. And we also want to hear from you if there's any other people that you are seeing, Radiant Church, that you feel like might have a call of eldership or other leadership on their lives. We just want you to know that we're open. We want to hear what God is also putting on some of your hearts. So when you're leaving today, as you're taking off, if uh, this this applies to you, then stop and pick up one of those little forms in the back. You can fill it out and leave it today somewhere, or get it to me, or get it to an offering team, or stick it in the media booth, or something like that. Or you can bring it next week, and we'll get it. Is that all right? Yeah? All right. Hey, one of the trends that we continue to observe in our culture is a decreasing sense of value and significance to some of the things that were once really held in high regard. And I think we can see it across the boards. This is not a new thing. This has been going on for some... Yeah, thank you. I'm not sure if I'm going to need it, but I had a froggy there a second ago. Thanks, Sean. This is uh, one of the things that we've seen going on for some time. We see it in relationships. You know, relationships that used to have such a high value and focus. You know, there's all the, the talk nowadays about relationships are now texting relationships. And uh, things seem to be slipping you know, in some of these areas. And that has to do with things like respect for others or even respect for creation, how we care for creation, um, or possibly authority, you know, a sense of respect for authority. Or it even has to do with smaller things that are shifting that are no longer as significant, like letter writing. You know, how many of you have written a letter in a, in a while? You know, that's great. If you've written a letter, that's a big thing. That, that used to be a huge part of communication and now it's like, it's easier to send a text, or this or that. And letter writing, and some other simpler things like that, like silence. <laughs> Where is silence in our culture today? Or leisurely walks. You know, I've even noticed when uh, I go on a walk, because my wife is needing to get her steps in, or because, uh, or because we're going on a bike ride, I always have my phone with me, and I'll be darned if I don't find myself like pulling it up like that's... Like we need to constantly have things going through our minds. You know, whatever happened to silence and quieting our hearts and being able to pull back from the busyness. You know, there's so many more things. But we also see these trends happening in the church, in the church culture. We see this subtle shift away from things that maybe used to have a greater significance like reverence, like holiness, like obedience, like respect for the things of God. And we see a more casual, kind of relaxed, or even like a commonplace, individualistic kind of perspective about spiritual things. And I just have to confess, I myself, I've wrestled with some of this stuff over the years. Um, So I've been part of this subtle shift, you know, in my own life and uh, to some degree that's affected the church Um, but I've wrestled with some of the, I guess I'd say, more traditional activities of church culture over the years, wanting to avoid uh, what comes across as just empty religion. You know, that's been something that in my early years in the church, um, I really got a distaste for some of these things. that seemed really empty and just seemed like religious routine, and I found myself longing for just simple obedience to the Word of God, simple biblical obedience, and at times I've been frustrated over the years with what looked like in traditional church, uh, what, what came across to me as like empty formality, and uh, just routine, going through religious routine, and really it kind of became a bit of a pet peeve in my life, um, which is not the worst thing. You know, I, in my early years, if you've heard my testimony, I'm not getting into it today, but... You know, some denominational traditions took a high precedence over the Scriptures in some things in my early 20s that affected me a lot. And I just thought, I'm, I'm going to draw a line here in my own life. I kind of drew this line and said, I'm never going to allow a denominational or a tradition that I'm in prevent me from seeing simply what the Scriptures say. And I probably do it all the time still. But, However, and that and that's not all been bad. It's not all been bad. And when we wrestle through things like this in our own lives and in our church culture, it's not all bad, but sometimes in this process of wrestling and kind of looking for things to shift significance, sometimes in making these adjustments, we can lose track of some absolutely beautiful and powerful aspects of our faith. They can kind of get lost and maybe shuffled away. And that's sad. The last thing we want to do is see things minimized that are meant to be powerful points of encouragement in our faith. We're in a series right now called Holy War. And what this series is all about is it's about looking to restore a sense of value and reverence to some of the things that maybe we've lost hold of. And as a Word and Spirit church, we're committed to the Word of God and we're committed to surrendering to the Spirit of God. As a Word and Spirit church, we are committed to wanting the Word of God to shape everything that we do. Even our church culture. We don't think it's just meant to kind of shape our spiritual lives and that's separated somehow to how we do church. We want it to shape everything that we are as a family and our church culture. That is our heart. And so as we're uh, going to the Word today and going to be talking about some things, that's our, our, our hope. Our hope is that we can come and submit our hearts and say, God, let your Word adjust us. Let your word shape us. Today, what we're focusing on, we're going to be talking about a high view of the sacraments, specifically baptism and communion, a high view of the sacraments. And sacraments may not be a term that uh, you use a lot. There's some of you that are real familiar with it. Some are not as familiar. And it might sound a little intimidating. Um, it's not something in our uh, modern-day vocabulary that gets used a lot. But sacrament just means a sacred moment a moment in time or an event that is full of the grace and the mercy of God and the blessing of God. That's what a sacrament is. And historically, over the years, different church traditions have made longer or shorter lists of what the sacraments are. And uh, two of the things that have been on all of those lists are baptism and communion, and they're the two that we're going to focus on today because they are the ones that Jesus very specifically imparts to his church. He puts these two things in place, and today, just for sake of time, we're not going to talk about all of the other things that some of our church traditions that we were raised in might speak into or not. We're just going to allow those to be what they are, and we're going to focus on baptism and communion today and, and how God put those in place. And before we jump to the Word, because that's what we want to do, I want to give you a little bit of historical context. Um, Baptism and communion both can seem pretty commonplace to us. Like, we have communion quite a bit. You know, every few weeks we'll have communion. So what's the big deal? We got it. We know what goes on. We have baptisms a few times a year, and so we kind of got what's happening. So why are we talking about this again? And I think one of the things I want to say as we get ready to jump into the Scriptures is that baptism and communion have not always been so easy to observe. They've not always been as easy to observe as what we are able to enjoy today in our culture. Many others have gone before us and actually paid a huge price to be able to simply observe biblical baptism and biblical communion, their lives. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. In March of 1531... A Christ follower, a Jesus follower in the Netherlands named Seek Snyder, I think his name's Seek, can't figure out how to pronounce it. His name's Seek Snyder, he was beheaded for being baptized as a follower of Christ. He was sentenced to be executed with a sword because he'd been rebaptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, thus minimizing his infant baptism. And believer's baptism in that day was seen as heresy. Many, many, many people lost their lives because they wanted to be baptized in the way that Jesus called for it as disciples and followers and believers in Him. They wanted to be baptized as believers and that was not an agreement with the state church at that time. And so, many lost their lives. Some of you have heard and some of you have been a part of Mennonite roots. The Mennonite uh, denomination as a group got its roots got its roots out of the Reformation times. They were called Anabaptists. And that's what the initial group of Mennonites were. They were Anabaptists. And Anabaptists means to be baptized again. That's all it meant. And hundreds and hundreds of Anabaptists were executed because they wanted to be baptized as followers of Christ. In that same basic time frame, in the mid-1500s in England, 288 followers of Christ were, were burned at the stake for their beliefs about the Lord's Supper or Communion. That included one archbishop, four lead elders, 21 pastors, 55 women, and four children. They were executed by Queen Mary because they were not in agreement with the views of the state church about Communion. And it's, you know, it's hard when you read some of this and you study some of this to see the history that we've had over the years. And uh, I share those two accounts with you to really simply show that the freedom that you and I enjoy to get today in this country, which is amazing, <clears throat> that we shouldn't take it for granted. We shouldn't take it for granted. And as we jump into the word today about baptism and communion, may we not say, what's the big deal? Baptism and communion... Let's remember that there's those that have gone before us that have given their lives for this valuable sacrament to be a part of their experience. They've given their lives. So it's significant for us to be able to say, let's make sure that we're at least connected well. We live in a culture where nobody here in our land is being beheaded or burned at the stake for their views about baptism and communion. But we also live in a land where it can be easy for these things to slip and lose their sense of significance. You know, there'd probably be quite a few of us here going like, man, why would you give your life for communion? (laughs) Right? We'd be going like, really? And maybe there's something that God's wanting us to recapture in our hearts about this. Yeah, pretty cool. Well, Father, as we open your word today, we just want to humble our hearts, God. We want to humble ourselves to be under your word, your scriptures. And God, I want to ask that you would help us if there's any adjustments that need to be made in our hearts and in us as a church culture, that you would help us, God, to reclaim a sense of awe and reverence, that you would stir our hearts with faith, you would encourage our faith as we would look at the Scriptures together, God, and do just want to say, Papa, thank you for those that have gone before us, Lord, for something that I've taken for granted probably just about all my life as a, as a believer. Lord, thank you for those that paid a great price, um, that didn't have this freedom. Lord, help me not to take it for granted. Pray that any place where, where I or where we as a family have lost a sense of reverence and awe about what you've given us in communion and what you've given us in baptism, God, would you, by your Spirit, allow our hearts to recapture those things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, grab your Bibles. Let's talk about baptism first. And uh, the way we're going to do that, we're going to look at uh, Jesus' baptism. That's a great place to start. In uh, Matthew chapter 3, it's recorded several times in the Gospels, and I'm just going to read from Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him and said, Let this be done. This is fitting and this is right to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, and Jesus was baptized, and immediately when he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened to him, and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And rested on him. And there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. In this uh, cool little recorded story of Jesus being baptized, there's a few things that are interesting that go on here. You know, John, um, who's out baptizing in the river, sees Jesus coming to him, and he he knows that Jesus is this Messiah, the Son of God. He's the one... That, is, that everything's going to hang on. And so Jesus comes and says, I'm, I'm needing to be baptized. And John's going like, wait a minute. What are you talking about? I, I can't baptize you. you got to baptize me. You know, And Jesus was able to say, no, this is important. This needs to be done. And this is significant. This is important. And I guess my comment would be, if for Jesus this is important, how much more is this important for our lives as his followers? And also, I want you to notice what happens when Jesus is baptized. He's baptized, comes up out of the water, and then has this encounter with God. And yeah, this was a unique encounter because Jesus was uniquely set aside as the Son of God that would come to be the Savior of the world. And so there's a unique baptism that goes on here. But we look for the same stuff to happen in baptisms. When people are baptized, we look for them to come up out of the water and to receive and impartation from heaven. We're looking for the Spirit of God and the love of God to freshly embrace. It's interesting because we don't have a whole lot that's gone on in Jesus' life. Records, we have recorded data that shows that Jesus was about 30 years old here, and everything kind of starts after he's baptized. This is initiation into ministry. He goes right from being baptized out in the wilderness and then right launched into ministry. And uh, so baptism was a significant thing in the life of Jesus. I want you to jump. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. A familiar passage about 20 chapters later, the end of Matthew, where Jesus is just about to ascend to his throne. And he's already died on the cross. He's been raised from the grave. And he's about to ascend to his throne after spending some weeks with the disciples, encouraging them. Uh, filling them full of faith, giving them direction. And in Matthew 28, this is what Jesus says to them, his parting words to the disciples is this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And this is how you do it. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end. So going into all the world and making disciples, for Jesus, included baptizing them. That's part of this process. Going to all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them how to follow the things that I've given you. Not just giving them a bunch of rules, but teaching them how to live a life surrendered. Teaching them how to obey you. So as Jesus is about to leave, he really puts into place... Uh, a very clear mandate for the disciples that discipling the nations includes baptizing them. It includes, includes dunking them in the water and baptizing them, initiating them in to the kingdom. Notice that this doesn't come across as a suggestion. It doesn't come across as, what about this for an idea? Or it doesn't come across, Jesus doesn't say, hey, For those of you that are kind of cool with it and it fits in with you and it doesn't like mess you up too much or mess your hair up too much or whatever it is, why don't you try this? It's a command. It's really clear. And if this was not a list of about 150 things, it'd be pretty different. But when this is the parting words of the head of the church to those that would lead the church, he says, run into the world, go to the nations, make disciples, baptize them. Teach him how to live a surrendered life, an obedient life. It's a command. Acts chapter 2, just kind of going on the story, we see Jesus' baptism. We see Jesus in Matthew 28 giving this commission. Then Acts chapter 2, the early church is born. The Holy Spirit is given in Acts chapter 2. And I'm not going to read through all this, but I'm just going to talk about it for a second. The Holy Spirit is given. The early church is waiting. The disciples are waiting. There's 120 gathered and they're saying, Jesus said don't leave till I do something with you, so we're waiting. And the Holy Spirit comes on them. And there's some crazy things that happen. The Holy Spirit's released and there's visible signs of the Holy Spirit there in their midst. There's people speaking in other tongues. There's people hearing things in other tongues. There's, there's this gathered crowd for the Passover feast that are hearing the commotion from this upper room, and they're hearing, they're hearing their own languages. And they're going like, what is going on? This is crazy. It was pretty loud and raucous. It was, yeah, it's, it's a pretty crazy scene that goes on. And one of the probably bigger miracles that happens is Peter, the disciple, who's the guy known for putting his foot in his mouth, right? The one that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to, from Peter talking to him. Peter starts preaching the gospel. Because people are saying, what's happening here? Peter preaches the gospel. He gives a preach of the gospel that is so powerful that thousands of people are going, okay, we got it. We want to be saved. We want to be saved. We want to become followers of Christ. We get it. Our hearts are convicted. We're with you. We want to be saved. And the disciples, Peter and these disciples, what do they say to that group? What's the response when this group says, how do we be saved? We want to be saved like you guys are are saved. What, What is the response at the end of Acts 2? It says, repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That's all they said. They didn't say, make sure to get into church, do your devotions. Are you ready to tithe? He said, repent, which means turn toward God. Turn from your life toward a good father that wants to lead you a different way be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. That's simple. Like that was what it was meant to be to get started in the faith. And for the New Testament church, guys, coming to salvation simply meant that. It meant repentance, baptism, and the Holy Spirit. The word for baptism in the original language, uh, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. The word for baptism there is baptizo, and it's actually a word that wasn't familiar in the church. It was, a wor- it was a word that was used primarily in the working culture. And it was used primarily for women who were going to dye a piece of cloth. And they would take their, their piece of cloth that was maybe white that they want to do dye green. Or it would be some other, you know, more hip color today. But they take a piece of cloth and they baptize with it. It means to immerse. It means to saturate something in something else. And that's, that's what the New Testament word means. Um, and in Romans chapter 6, probably um, one of the neatest passages that paints a, a picture for us about what baptism is for us in the church today. Romans chapter 6 kind of takes this meaning, verse 3 and 4. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus... Have been baptized into his death. We were buried with Christ by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's a really cool picture of what baptism is. Baptism is a physical expression of what it is to be saved. And it is that we are dying to the old life and being raised to live a different way. And so, like, even when we talk about immerse, immersing in water, when people are going down, we're saying, okay, that old life is gone, and you're being raised to live a new life. Baptism is reflective of that. So, baptism is initiation for believers into their faith, into their salvation. It's a visible and a public expression of your salvation, kind of like a wedding is to a committed relationship. You know, I think it's pretty easy for us here. We kind of would frown on, oh, yeah, we're in this committed relationship. Yeah, we're we're really, we're committed. Are you getting married? No, no. We're not doing that. Um, We just don't kind of want to do this public thing, and it always raises questions in our minds. You know, baptism is like this public expression of this covenant that's going on inside. It's a beautiful thing. It's meant to be this initiation. And I want to say that baptism is not merely symbolic. It's a physical thing that we do. So a lot of times in the church we kind of think, well, it's kind of a symbolic thing. Baptism is not just symbolic. You know, when you do the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, and you face a flag, and you cross your heart, and you do the Pledge of Allegiance, that's a symbolic act of patriotism. And there's some things that can be stirred in you, like there are things that are stirred in me. I've been an American all my life. I was born here. But it's different. When we talk about baptism and communion, both, these are not simply symbolic things. There's a tangible expression of something that God has called us to do, and there's this interaction with the grace of God that occurs in baptism. When you're baptized, it's not just a symbol there's something that takes place, just like with Jesus' baptism. So it's first of all an, initial, an initiation for, for believers into their faith. Secondly, baptism is a beautiful sign and seal of you belonging to Jesus. Baptism is a beautiful sign and seal of you belonging to Jesus. When you're baptized, it's a loud and proud proclamation that you belong to God and that His whole life belongs to you. That's what it is. And it's exciting. You know, I talk to people and, and spend time praying with folks over the years that struggle with a sense of the love of God and a sense of, yeah, I'm not really sure. if, You know, I guess, I not, have you ever been baptized? No, I'm kind of not into that. It's not really the tradition I was raised in. I'm saying, well, you may want to consider changing your tradition. Because the tradition that Jesus gives us in the Scripture says that this is a part of anchoring us into our sense of belonging. And it's important for us a sense of belonging. That is how God created us. Do you know that? God created you and I to both have this need inside of us, this kind of vacuum inside of us for us to need to belong. And before we come to an understanding that God is the one that's going to meet that need, we try to stuff other things in there. Other people, the church, other things, possessions, possessions. We try to stuff other things in there to meet this gnawing ache in our hearts to belong to something. You know, even in the culture that we live in, in the valley here, where there's so much gang activity, you know, what they say is the reason these gangs are so prolific is because everybody has a need to belong and they belong to this gang and it meets a need in their lives. Well, that need that we have to belong, God created and put it in us for the purpose that we'd come running to Him to find Him to meet that need in us. Baptism is a part of helping anchor that in our lives. It's something we do that anchors us in that we belong to God. I think thirdly that baptism is also a fresh immersion into all that God is and all of His resources for our lives. When Jesus was baptized, there was a fresh power and authority released in His life. And I believe that is God's plan for us as believers as well. When we're baptized, that there is a, a release from heaven That there's a sense of activation of the Spirit of God in our lives. There's a sense of activation of the gifts of God in our lives. And for crying out loud, we need His power. We need His grace fully released in our lives, right? I don't just need a taste of it. I need everything that He has to give me. I need it. We here uh, at Radiant, we baptize by immersion or dunking when we can do that. But I want to just let you know this teaching isn't about all the how-tos on this. We can get hung up on exactly how um, you baptize, you sprinkle, you pour, you immerse? And there's reasons that we baptize in, by immersion, but it's, doesn't, it's not that big a deal. It's not that significant how you do it as it is why we do it. What is the purpose behind our baptisms? There's also many different traditions represented here, and we're not looking to minimize or take away from any tradition that you've been a part of, whatever your experience has been. But... I am here to say let's align our callings to the simple invitation of Jesus to be baptized as followers. You know, I was raised in a tradition that uh, they were all about baptisms. It was the Baptist church. So they were all about baptisms. And um, uh, I was baptized when I was like in second, third grade, so I was about seven or eight, and I was baptized because my friends were getting baptized and so I thought, oh, little Joey's going to be baptized. Tommy White's being baptized. I'm going to be baptized. So I got baptized. And uh, I, I knew who Jesus was. And I would kind of, you know, I probably had prayed the prayer somewhere in there. Because I was, I was sent to the church, taken to church, sent more by my folks and taken. But um, I, I kind of knew the Lord. But that's not why I was being baptized. So later on as an adult, as a young adult, I was baptized as a follower of Jesus, and it was a significant thing for me to do. It was important for me to do um, because I wanted to follow through on that. When I was baptized as a young seven- eight-year-old, I, uh, there was not a sense, any kind of clue in my mind as to what I was doing. I wasn't making a declaration that I was going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. I was making a declaration I'm not going to be left behind for my friends that are doing something. And you get a, you get a gift Bible if you do this or something, right? So... <laughs> There's uh, some here that were baptized or even sprinkled as infants. Some of you here, that was your tradition. You were baptized or sprinkled as infants during a time of dedication. And there's, I'm, they're not going to say anything negative about that. But if you are a Christ follower here, it's high time that you get baptized as a believer and a follower of Jesus. That, you don't need to say that that's minimizing or negating anything that's happened. If you were, as an infant, baptized during a dedication time, receive it as that. Be blessed. That's great. Now be baptized as a believer, as a follower of Christ. That's what we encourage. So what about kids? The key here is that um, our hope is that children would be old enough to understand that they're making a decision to follow Jesus, not like I did for that week, but for their lives. A decision to follow Jesus for their lives. A general gauge is somewhere like 10 to 12 years old. But parents, you're the guardian over your kids, so we're looking for your involvement in that, and I'm glad, the other pastors are glad, we're glad to help you figure that out. But a general guide is 10 to 12. Uh, the, the real key is that it's about having a personal relationship with Jesus and being secure and clear about that. I want to follow Jesus. I've given my life to Christ, and I am his, he is mine. I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. That's what baptism is. So, let's jump to communion. Alright, you guys with me still? Alright, let's jump to communion. Communion is, for many of us here, one of those regular practices in our lives that really can become kind of mundane and routine, even robotic. You know, it's something that we can, we can stand in line for communion and be checking our phone with the football scores and talking to people as we're coming and... I don't mind people, you know, I'm into fellowship. But uh, as we we talk about this, I want to just say that once you're preparing to come to the table, when you're getting close to the table, like when you're way back in the line, if you're saying hi to somebody, that's great. When you're getting close, maybe there'll be something different that happens from the future as we're walking this through. There'll be a time of quieting your heart and, and considering a bit. Because we don't want to be robbed of the power and beauty of what God wants to do with us in communion. The biblical origin of communion is also in the Scriptures. Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to turn there and read. Luke chapter 22. Verses 19 through 20. And this is Jesus with the disciples having a Passover meal right before Jesus is getting ready to head to the cross. And it says, Jesus took the bread... And when he had given thanks to the Father, he broke the bread and he gave it to the the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is what was later referred to in the early church as the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. That was the terminology that was used in the early church And it was embraced and practiced a few books over in 1 Corinthians. Probably the most significant passage that we have in the New Testament about communion is in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17 through 34. And it's a little longer passage. I'm just going to read through it real quickly. You can uh, look back at it later in depth. And this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. And what you'll notice here is that Paul's not saying to the church, hey, try this new thing called communion or the Lord's Supper. It's already happening in the church, and it's already being mistreated. There's already problems. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, this letter that Paul's sending to the Corinthian church is really an adjustment to their practice of communion. So here it goes. It says, in the following, I do not commend you, because as you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are many divisions among you, and I believe that in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine would be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you seem to eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And I want you to catch that little phrase. Who's writing, this, who's writing this letter to Corinth? Paul. Led by the Holy Spirit, but it's Paul. And I want to remind you that Paul never walked with Jesus as the original disciples and apostles. Paul came after that. And so it's interesting what Paul says here. Catch it. He says, I receive this from Jesus, and this is what I'm delivering to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he would given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then these next verses, I'd encourage you to read them, but it basically says, be careful when you come to this table. Don't come in a slipshod way. Come with a sober heart and a serious heart. Don't come holding sin in your heart, harboring sin in your heart, or acting like it's no big deal. I'd encourage you to read through this. In this passage, though, it's kind of interesting what Paul unpacks. First of all, he rebukes the Corinthian church If you read through the the book of Acts, you find that in the early church, they did quite a number of things. They gathered a lot, like daily. If you read that, they gathered daily, and they were used to sharing meals together. They were also used to setting aside the Lord's Supper in the midst of it. Well, in the Corinthian church, you can see what happened. Somehow, the shared meal and sharing the Lord's Supper had gotten intermingled So it says something crazy enough that we're reading it says that people are pushing their way through the line like it's a church potluck. And they're like, there's people with full plates kicking people to the side that don't have food. And there's people getting drunk. It's like, man, that's, we got issues in our church. I'm glad it's not that issue. Um, But they they'd gotten some things intermingled and they had lost a sense of reverence and significance for what communion was, what the Lord's Supper was. So the Holy Spirit through Paul is looking to put that back into place. And he says things like in verse 23, I received this from Jesus. Obviously, Jesus, in Paul's encounter with Jesus on the way, uh, on the road to Damascus, God, one of the things that God wanted to get into Paul's mind very clearly is this thing about communion. So that Jesus specifically said to Paul, this is what I want you to put in place in the church. And rehearsed this to Paul. So Paul's not saying, I got this from some other notes. I received this from Jesus. This is direct from the Lord that he's saying, this is what I want to happen in the church. We're invited in this passage to come with a serious heart to the table. We're invited to this passage to come in a spirit of examination, which means your life is open. Your heart is open. You're coming and maybe freshly looking at your week saying, "Oh, you know what, I've carried some stupid things in my, my, my heart this week that I need to yield and surrender. So it's a a fresh place of examination and humility. And we're called to remember Christ and the work of Jesus on the cross. That's the significant here. It's a place of remembrance where we're getting completely focused on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Communion is a tangible and physical reminder of the reality of our Savior's sacrifice. That's why we don't just come and say, let's just think about the death of Christ. We take a piece of bread and break it. And you receive a physical piece of bread because it was his physical body that was broken. This isn't just some symbolic thing. It was his physical body that was broken. So you receive a physical piece of bread. And the way we do it here is we break the bread and we dip it in the cup. And so when you dip it in the cup, that's real juice you're dipping it into representing the real blood of Christ that was shed. So it's meant to do something tangible for us, that we, whenever we participate in the Lord's Supper, that we're going, real body, real blood for me. A real king and God who came as a savior to die for me. This was a real thing. This is not just a story. This is not just a flannel graph deal. This was real. And this is real. And so it's a proclamation of the reality of Christ's suffering for us. A beautiful proclamation. So our hope is that communion would not become something that's just a religious routine or a lifeless ritual. Yeah, I've been there. I'm just dipping the bread and the juice, eating, you know, whatever. But that we would stop and we would allow some things to happen in our hearts. First thing about communion is that it's about remembrance. Remembering the great sacrifice of Jesus. It's a personal altar for you to remember and reflect on the goodness of God. What Jesus has done for you, what His amazing love has done for me in Jesus dying on this cross. So be encouraged. His work is completed. Jesus said as it is finished, and you know what? As you come to the table, be reminded of the completed, finished work of Christ and also be reminded that those things that are not finished in you yet those things that are still on the way are going to be finished soon because of the finished work of Christ. They're going to be finished soon. It's going to be completed in you soon. So let it be a place of hope. Communion is also about reflection. It's an opportunity for us to freshly examine our hearts and lives and freshly surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. If you're coming to the table and you are harboring stuff in your heart toward people... I'd say hold back until you can say, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to walk it through. Hold back from this altar. You don't come here because you're perfect. This isn't like if you've had a good week and you've done your devotions like 80% of the time, haven't sinned a ton, come to the table. It has nothing to do with that. That's works. We're not doing that thing. Don't ever get that confused. But if you're struggling with something, you're saying, nope, I'm not ready to give that sin up, then hold back from coming to this table. Because this table is about surrender. So you come here to celebrate that Jesus, living King of the church, paid a big price so that you could be alive today. And it, and it calls for us to surrender and submit. So oftentimes when I come to this table, I'm, remi- I'm going back, Lord, is there anything that I'm holding? Oh, man. I should not have yelled at my wife this way. I should not have been impatient this way. It's a time of examination, time of reflection. Third thing that communion is very similar to baptism is about belonging. It's about relationship. You know, there's a lot of things that Jesus did publicly with his church. There's a few things he did privately. This was a family meal. This wasn't done out in the multitudes. Anybody want to have some of this? This was a family meal, very private, for those that were following Jesus. This meal is about belonging to God in the same way that that baptism ministers that sense of belonging, this meal is a family meal where all those that are followers of Jesus are invited to partake. If you follow Jesus and you love Jesus, communion is for you to partake of. It's not about church membership. It's not like you need to be a part of this church to be able to partake of this communion. This is for all believers when we serve communion here all those that would say, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus, this table's for you. This meal celebrates that you belong to God. And you know what happens when we come to Jesus? Not only do we belong to God once we've given our lives over to Him, but it says He does this amazing thing when when we come to Him, that we become a part of His body. So you also belong to the beautiful church. You belong to the church. I'm not talking about radiant church. That's a small C church. You belong to the Big C Church of God, His Bride of Christ. You belong to the church. And when you participate in this table, you are being reminded every time that you belong to God and you belong to His church. As our brothers are over in India, they're partaking in communion with the church in India, being reminded that, man, we have so much different from these guys. They have so much different from us, but we belong to the same beautiful church that's following Jesus. Be reminded of that. This is way bigger than our traditions. Way bigger than some of those smaller things. And if some of you have different traditions, I want to just say again, don't get hung up on those little specifics. Don't get too legalistic about things that the scriptures aren't legalistic about. We don't know exactly what kind of bread and juice, and it doesn't point to it. It doesn't really say in scripture anything about how frequently we're to do this. You know, some of you were raised in settings where you celebrated communion every week, Some of you once a quarter, some of you once a month. If you're part of Radiant, we do it when we do it. You know, it's probably about every few weeks, uh, maybe more often sometimes, less often sometimes. That's just, it, it doesn't matter how often you do that or what those elements are. What matters is what's happening in our hearts whenever we do come to the table. Now, what about kids here? Similarly to baptism, We have no set rule that we're saying you must abide by other than this table is set for those who have a personal relationship with Jesus. So parents, you're the guardian of your kids. If your kids have a personal relationship with Jesus, then bring your kids to this table when they're with you. And make sure they understand what's going on. And help them understand this piece of bread dipped in this juice is representing the great sacrifice of Jesus. You know, I... um, I'm not real particular about protecting traditional things, but you might see me at times after we have communion at the table, and there's things back here. I'll see kids coming up and grabbing bread, and I'll say, okay, guys, hold on a minute. Are you grabbing bread to eat bread? Are you grabbing bread to have communion? If you want to have communion, let's do it. And I'll walk it through with them and talk with them, or I'll take the, I'll take the same bread off this table and walk it out on the playground and say, oh, now it's just bread. Take it. You know, but I just don't want it to come from this table. And parents, we need you to help with that not saying police your kids afterwards. Make sure they have an understanding and a sense of of respect and awe for the beauty that we're able to experience as we come to the table of the Lord together. So parents, if you need discussion about that, we'd we'd be glad to help, but this is meant to be a powerful, beautiful thing. So really in closing, what do we do about this? First thing I want to say is be baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've not been baptized... Be baptized. Would you guys get that sign and move it over here? Sam Maxson uh, made us a sign. We're going to do a sign-up for baptism as we do communion today. We're going to have baptisms three weeks from today on Easter morning. And uh, if if you're here and you have not been baptized as a follower of Jesus, I want to just say, church, be baptized. Follow the Lord in baptism. And get in those baptism waters and let God seal, seal you up. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to come to this table today with fresh eyes, full of awe and worship for the Lord who's paid the price for us. And as you come to this table, I want to encourage you to come remembering Jesus. I want to encourage you to come and as a part of this, reflect on your own life, surrendering to him freshly. And I want to encourage you to come and remember that you belong. You belong to God. You belong to Jesus. And his full work of salvation belongs to you. Be reminded of that. You know, sometimes I try to get people to fit that need in my life. And when I do that, I'm always disappointed. There is something to be said about having good relationships and connections within a church family. But don't be fooled into thinking that your need for belonging is going to somehow get met by that. It's not. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be frustrated with me and other leaders because we can't do what your heart needs. But Jesus can. He is enough. And then he gives us the blessing of being a part of his church as well. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com Until next time. There is a heavenly city That I'm compelled to find Oh, I love the flowers and trees And the smell of the grinding sea And all the beautiful things here in life and I